Good morning. I'm John Martin. I get to help check your kids into church, and I'm one of the leaders at Celebrate Recovery. Please join me as we read. Oh, thanks. Please join me as we read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to prevent, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Thank you, John. All right, let's pray. Lord, we ask that the word of God would would do its work in us. It cuts in a beautiful way. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It gets right down to the core of who we are, discerning between our thoughts, our motives, our intents. And so, uh, Lord, let the scripture today sink deep within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, did, has anybody seen the Jesus Revolution? Anybody go this weekend? So, quite, quite a few of you. Good. So, you know, if you want to kind of know where our church has come from, we've come from that, the Jesus movement. Uh, I'm a second generation uh, Calvary Chapel guy, uh, got saved through the ministry of a first generation Calvary Chapel guy in Southern California, Jeff Johnson, one of the crazy hippies. And, um, and so uh, Pam and I haven't seen it yet. We plan on seeing it this week and look forward to that. Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, then you've probably referred to your life before Jesus as the BC days. Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, you know, the BC days. And, and usually we use that in reference to, to maybe something we used to do back then that maybe we don't do now kind of thing because Jesus is in our life. In our passage, Paul makes reference to the BC days, but he, he doesn't stop there. He also references our current days and our future days. As a child of God, there are certain things that are true about your past and your present and your future. And that kind of forms our, our outline this morning. So these things are true of every single person for whom Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, so number one, let's talk about our past, and and it's characterized, our past is characterized by alienation, alienation from God. That's verse 21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, alienated, hostile, doing evil stuff. That sounds like a description of an anarchist or some extremist or, you know, terrorist or something. But in reality, it is describing, if you're a Christian here this morning, it's describing your past before Christ. 
You see, the good news of the gospel is set against the bad news of the reality of our condition, the human condition before God. And so from God's perspective, which by the way, God's perspective is the very definition of reality. That's what reality is. There is no one righteous apart from him. There's no one who does good apart from him. We are all fallen sinful creatures. Job said it this way in Job 14.4, who can bring purity out of an impure person? And he answers his own question. He says, no one. That's impossible. So most people, I think I'm safe in saying that, most people have a pretty low resolution understanding of human nature. They think that most people, are, that people are basically good. And, and, and they'll say, yes, there are some bad people in the world, but the great majority of people are good. And, and just look at, around at all the good things that people do and the charitable things and so on. And so, so the hope for humanity is the goodness of man. And we even have uh, ideologies built around that to, to bring in a utopia. And there's a World Economic Forum that thinks that we can bring the world into a place where there, there is no more problems like there were because they believe in the goodness of man. Bad people are the anomaly and their behavior is usually attributed as you know, some kind of mental disorder or bad upbringing and so on. And yet it's interesting, it's not uncommon to hear the, the neighbor of the serial killer or the terrorist or whatever, the child pornographer, hear them interviewed about their neighbor and say, well, you know, they seem like a normal person. They were actually a pretty nice guy. The Simplistic categories of good people and bad people, they don't really hold up to scrutiny because everyone is a mixed bag at best. So-called bad people have done good things in their life. So-called good people have done bad things in their life. So God's diagnosis of the human condition is strikingly different than the good, good guy, bad guy paradigm. So the Bible places all humans, everyone, in the sinful category. Sinful, righteous, ungodly, alienated from God, hostile in our minds. All of those are descriptors of the default condition of all human beings apart from God. Now, it might be a tough pill to swallow, and yet that is what God says about humanity. Because of Adam's fall, all humans, without exception, are born into the, well, there's one exception, and we'll talk about him later, but all humans are born into this condition. So one, one of the ironic conditions of being a sinner is that sin keeps you from realizing that you're a sinner. There's an irony there, is there not? So sin, the Bible says, is deceitful. It deceives us. So Jeremiah famously in Jeremiah 79 said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Wow. What a, what a statement 
And he wasn't excluding his own heart from that. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher uh, from England, oh, about 70 years ago. He was having heart surgery and he was done with the surgery. He was convalescing. His surgeon comes to visit him and says to Dr. Jones, or to Martin Lloyd-Jones, listen, Martin, I, I held your beating heart in my hands like this. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I trust you found it desperately wicked. <laughs> sin is interesting because the knowledge of our personal sin is in inverse ratio to its presence in us. So, in other words, it's only as sin gets out of our life that we realize the gravity of it, what it actually is. It's a strange dynamic. When it's present, we don't realize the weight of it, the gravity, the evil of it, because the nature of sin is that it destroys our capacity to know it. And that's why it says in Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily while it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us. I was given, a friend gave me an 1828 edition of the Webster's Dictionary as a uh, Christmas gift this year. And it's fascinating because among other things, uh, this edition often quotes scripture to illustrate what the definitions are of words. And for instance, in this 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, the definition of the word deceive is, quote, to cause to believe what is false or to disbelieve what is true. It then quotes 1 John 1.10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So we're causing ourselves to believe what is not true. The Bible gives us a lot of clues into this dynamic. For instance, Proverbs 30, 12 says, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. It's the grand illusion. Any Styx fans here this morning? I promised the worship team I'd, I'm going to uh, use a sticks il- illustration this morning. We, we were in worship rehearsal yesterday. Every, we rehearse every Saturday. And, um, and somehow we got on the subject of sticks. And I'm sailing away. Everybody remember sticks, right? So anyway, they had, a, they had an album called The Grand Illusion. Come Sail Away was on that record, The Grand Illusion. But The Grand Illusion was a song about their life as rock stars. And I'll just read you a couple of lyrics. Come and see what's happening. Pay the price. Get your tickets for the show. The stage is set. The band starts playing. Suddenly your heart is pounding, wishing secretly you were a star. But don't be fooled by the radio, the TV, or the magazines. They show you photographs of how your life should be, but they're just someone else's fantasy. So if you think your life is complete confusion because you never win the game, just remember, this is a grand illusion. 
And deep inside, we're all the same. We're all the same. Sticks peel back the curtain and expose the lie that fame and wealth and stardom make you happy and fulfilled and really something is nope. Doesn't work like that. Just like you. It's a grand illusion, you see. So too, there's a grand illusion that is pervasive throughout humanity. The grand illusion is that humans are good apart from God. That is the grand illusion. Sin is very effective at deceiving us into believing something that is not true. Pride works in concert with sin to get us to believe that. Proverbs 21, or Psalm 21, 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. <laughs> wow. Listen, whatever you do, you justify it. No matter how bad or how good, you have justification in your own mind for why you have done it. I'm right to yell at my husband. After all, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. It's okay that I spend all of my money. It's the least I should be able to do after all that I have to put up with. It's okay for me to gossip because I'm a truth teller and God's gifted me with the gift of opinions. And <laughs> it's fine that I look at porn. It's okay that I cheat on my taxes. It's I'm... I'm justified in having an affair because I'm not happy. Whatever. I mean, we justify it. It's been fascinating to hear what's been going on at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. People are calling it revival. And on February 8th, this a few weeks ago, after a regularly scheduled chapel service, about 20 or so uh, college students they, they stayed and lingered and began to worship and pray for one another. And other people started to join them in the chapel. And more people started to join and more and more. And night went by, still people in the chapel. And next day, more people. And now people are starting to hear about it. And there's people coming in from other parts of the country. Now there's thousands. There's th not only is the chapel being packed, but they're putting people in the auditorium all over the campus. And 70,000 people, not from Wilmore, which is a town of 6,000 people, by the way. 70,000 people converge. At the center of these meetings, like the, the heart of these meetings, from my understanding and looking at it and so on, is confession of sin. Confession of sin. Which causes me to think that, you know what? I think that's a real move of God. When I am the sole judge and arbiter of my attitudes and actions, I am going to tip the scales in my direction every time. I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to justify what I did, what I said. It's the result of the fall. I'm going to justify what I do.
Paul says you were alienated from God, hostile in your minds, doing evil stuff. That's true of all of us, every one of us. Secondly, number two, reconciliation. Our present, our past is characterized by alienation from God. Our present, if you're a Christian, is characterized by reconciliation to God. That's verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So we who were alienated from God by our sin have now been reconciled to God by his death on the cross. And this reconciliation to God, in spite of how you may feel from time to time, is not fragile. It's not tenuous. It's strong and sure because it's not based upon our performance and ability. Hebrews 10:19 puts it this way, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Holy places means the means God's presence. Not not the old holy place in Israel, the temple, but God's actual presence, the temple of heaven. And we enter by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. That's how he opened it up. There was a curtain in the temple, right? The Old Testament temple. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross? It was torn in two, top to bottom, signifying that the way to God was open. And that curtain is picturesque, Hebrews tells us, of the body of Jesus Christ. He was ripped for us. The Greek word underneath confidence, parisia, it means unresurrected or unrestricted rather freedom fearless confidence we have confidence to enter we have fearless confidence because our access and our welcome to the presence of God is not based upon how, how good or bad of a week I had. It's not based upon my performance. It's not based upon our integrity or our practical holiness or how many people we may have witnessed to or prayers we prayed or how much money we've given or chapters we've read. It's based solely upon the person and the work of our Lord Jesus. And because of that, we are unreservedly free and we are fearlessly confident to enter the holy of the true holy of holies in other words you can come to god come boldly before his throne in your time of need at any time at any moment any second of any day you can enter in you've been reconciled to him through the death of jesus christ well thirdly thirdly our future our past is characterized by alienation, our, our present by reconciliation. Our future is characterized by exaltation. Look at verse 22, the second half of it. We've been reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is, this is staggering. So blameless, it means faultless. It means you, you cannot be blamed for anything at that point. So 
so above reproach, you, you cannot, you're not going to be called into account for anything at that point. You are unaccused. You're unreprovable at that point. He redeemed us so that this would be true of our eternity, of our future with Jesus. Therefore, we look forward to and we long for our being with him. If, if I was thinking that, man, I'm going to be held into account. Now, we do give an account, but that's a whole t entirely different subject. But I will not be blamed for my horrible attitudes, my terrible actions, my harsh words, my sinful conduct on this planet. I will not. Because all of that has been placed on Jesus at the cross so that I can be presented, you two, blameless. Zero blame. Listen to what Peter says about what will be a joyous occasion. 2 Peter 1.11, you will receive, meaning Christians, you will receive a rich welcome into this eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich welcome. So some of your translations may say an abundant entrance. So, so there's no side door in heaven. There's no embarrassing, humiliating, slinking in, you know, down some side alleyway. You know, don't bring him through the front, you know, let's get him in the side. I want people to see. Those who go to heaven will get a grand entrance. I know you probably don't feel like you deserve it. I know I don't. But that's the thing. Our abundant entrance will be to the praise of his glorious grace. That's, that's the story. That's been the story. So it's not to the praise of my amazing faithfulness and performance. Nobody's going to be saying on that day, way to go, Fadness. You were a spiritual giant, man. You were an amazing believer. We're going to celebrate how you just, you just killed it as a Christian, you know. That is not going to happen. The angels and the saints that are already there, they will look at you, they'll look at me, and in a grand celebration of our entrance, they will say, wow, God, your grace is truly glorious. You've taken these fallen ones, these rebels, these broken ones, and, and, and now they are truly glorious because of Jesus, the glorious one. And it will be a joyous day. Jude 24 says, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Not a little bit of joy. I mean, we're talking serious, overwhelming, overflowing, can't contain it kind of joy. That's what's going to happen when you enter heaven. A grand entrance. Our past, alienation, our present, reconciliation, our future 
exaltation. But there's one more thing before we come to the table that we need to talk about. And that's in verse 23. And that is our determination. All of this is predicated, verse 23, upon our determination. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. So if you continue in the faith, if you don't continue in the faith, you won't get a grand entrance. You won't get an entrance at all. Now, I know that that may raise a lot of theological questions for you, and I can't address them this morning. We don't have time. But let me just say this. It seems like many people today are not continuing in the faith. Deconstruction has become a, a cultural buzzword used of people who are, you know, questioning the whole thing of Christianity and the gospel and is the Bible, you know, really the word of God and all that kind of stuff. Doubt and unbelief has been elevated to virtue. That's seen as virtue and certainty in faith is seen as vice. The Bible is considered archaic and retrograde, filled with errors And many people, celebrity Christians, pastors of large churches, whole denominations, have shifted from the hope of the gospel to the hope in the goodness of man. Paul says to us, for instance, in 2 Timothy 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then he says a couple verses later, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm not, or rather, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, I am not ashamed. I don't care what people are saying. I don't care the, about their intellectual arguments about, you know, th- this, that, or the other. I know whom I have believed in. I know him. And I am convinced. I'm certain. And I know certainty might sound like a sin to somebody on the other side of that coin, but I am certain, and I'm not ashamed to be certain that he is able to reserve for me that which he has put in in my name in heaven. Are you convinced? Are you confident? Are you certain that Jesus is who he says he is and is able to do what he says he's going to do? So if you are, then hold on tight. The cultural tide is against you and it's getting stronger Hebrews 4.14 says, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Hold on tight to your profession in Jesus. What's our profession? That he is Lord, that he's Lord of all, that he's supreme over all things, creator of everything there is, created everything for himself and and." Uh, 
And we are ultimately found, our life is found in him. He is the Lord of all. And public opinion, by the way, the, the Hebrews, the context of them, those Christians in that day, they were because of cultural pressure against Christianity, against Jesus and followers of Jesus, they were drifting into, into other kind of expressions of faith and spirituality. Public opinion was that Christianity, you know, it was a cult that was wacky and dangerous to society. And, and so Christians were being kept from places of cultural influence. They were being painted as extremists and, and they were being marginalized and persecuted. So Christians had to deal with this constant refrain of cultural scorn and disdain. And if they uh, were considering leaving the faith, listen, they would have plenty of encouragement to do so. Like if you want to leave the faith, you're going to get some big applause, I guarantee you, from some corners of your life. And so believers were drifting and questioning and deconstructing, even in that day in the first century. But the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast to your confession. Jesus is the Lord. At some point in your life, like we heard from those who got baptized today, at some point in their life, they confessed Jesus Christ, not only as the Lord, but as their Lord. And so if you've done that, continue. Hold fast to that confession. Don't let go. Be tenacious. And while being tenacious, be full of grace and love for those who come against you. Pray for your enemies, those who despitefully use you and come against you. That's what we're called to, church. One of my favorite illustrations of that kind of commitment comes from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> we'll end here. But I don't know if you remember this episode. I'm, I'm sure I've shared this at least a time or two over the years. But Worf, you remember Worf, a Klingon, a good Klingon, one of the few good Klingons, right? And Worf uh, was captured by the bad Klingons, by Dominion. And, uh, and they put him through training, essentially, where the, the bad Klingon, the Dominion Klingons, came and trained with Worf. And, and they would get into the, the fight ring with him and fight and fight. And Worf, you know, he's a bad dude. So he, he was pretty much beating everybody. But as the day is wearing on, he's starting to get tired. And, and people are starting to be able to land shots with him and everything. And finally, I think it's the seventh or eighth of the day, gets into the ring. And it's not just anybody. It's the baddest dude of all in the Dominion. And he gets in there with Worf, and, and Worf just can't. He can't put up a fight. He tries, but he's, he's sapped of all of his strength. And so the, the dude is just pummeling him and beating him and beating him. And now everybody that's surrounding and watching the fight is starting to go, Worf, just tap out, man. Just tap out. It's time. Like, you've shown your, your honor, and like, we respect you, dude. And Worf refuses to tap out. And in his mind, it's all about honor. I will not quit. And finally, the big dude that's pummeling him and pummeling him, he says, 
I concede. For it's apparent to me that this man cannot be beaten. He can only die. Is that true of you, Christian? That your confession of faith is so secure, so strong, that you cannot have it taken from you. You can only die. Let's pray. Lord, the, the issues of the gospel are profound and they are as deep as deep goes. And the call of the gospel is to place one human being, the only human being who lived a sinless life is to place that human being in the preeminent place in our lives. To call him Lord, Master, the one whom we obey, we love, we worship. And Lord, because we have been reconciled through the death of Jesus upon the cross. And because we have the promise of a glorious future upon our dying breath, we can say to live is Christ. And then when we die, that will be gain. We will be much better off when we die. And that is the firm hope of all of your people. So Lord, I pray that that would, that would steal our hearts to be firm in our commitment, that we would hold fast the confession of our faith, that as the tide of culture continues to come at us and ridicule us, question, what we believe and question the scripture and all the rest. Lord, that we might say with the Apostle Paul and with so many other thousands of our brothers and sisters, the saints who have died and gone to, the, to glory with you, that I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed and that he is able to guard that which he's entrusted to me. Lord, there is for us reserved in heaven, unfading and unperishing, a reward. So strengthen us, God, in our resolve. And Father, for those that don't know you this morning, that have yet to confess Christ is there, Lord, I pray that you would draw them even now to saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You're invited, if you're a Christian now, to make your way to one of the communion tables. If you're not a believer, if you haven't 
accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to talk to you just briefly and invite you to put your faith in him. And so you may be one of those people who maybe you haven't lived, you know, some crazy, immoral life, you know, that you've been kind of a moralist person. You've tried to do good, and so you've thought of yourself as good. Well, God's estimation of you is that you're not. (laughs) And so either you can believe that, or you can deceive yourself into believing the opposite. But if you're ready to believe what God says about you, then God says, for you who admit your sinfulness, come to Christ, the sinless one, who though he knew no sin, was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So in other words, Jesus took your place so that you can be made righteous in the sight of God through him. And all it takes is your trusting him, confessing him as Lord. So if that's you this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer. Pray this prayer with me. And say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And I know that I am a sinner. But thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Please come into my heart. I confess you as my Lord and my Savior. I place my faith in you. In your name I pray. Amen. wrote for us in 1 Corinthians 11:23 for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that is exactly what pastor Greg just did for what he received Paul wrote to the Corinthians this is what I received and so we are the recipients pastor Greg received and so now you are the recipients as you receive as well that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Recognizing that he was the one that was broken. He was judged because sin had to be judged, but it couldn't be judged on an unrighteous man. It had to be judged on the one who was righteous, who fulfilled the law to make us justified as though we had never sinned. So let's give thanks. Lord, we give you thanks. for being broken, for taking the blows, the brutality, the rejection, the judgment, the wrath that we deserve, but yet you said, I'll take their place. Because you are the only one who is able. And so Lord, we take this bread today 
in remembrance of you. Amen. And in the same way, as it says in verse 25, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is exactly what we're doing. We are proclaiming what Christ has done for us and that we have received his blessing because his blessing is, is that, yes, he took our blows, he took our judgment, but he also shed his blood and his life is in the blood and the fact that it's his blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We had campers last weekend. That we had communion, but prior to communion, we had a message of what Christ did for us and invited them to receive him, and they did. And they're new creatures. The old has passed away. Behold the new. And they were skipping around after communion like little young deer. It's like, what is wrong with them? And then you could tell they were free, free from the weight of sin. And that's what Jesus does for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you took away our shame, our guilt. You cleansed us from all of that, from all unrighteousness, all. And you gave us new life. Our purpose now is to live for you. And so, Jesus, we drink in new life is what we're drinking in. We acknowledge what you did for us because you're the one that gave us new life. There's no grave that's going to hold us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Why don't you drink?